This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. They were sentenced to life in prison without parole when they were juveniles. But a Colorado Supreme Court ruling means some of them are, in fact, eligible for shorter sentences. Curtis Brooks, now 38 years old, is among them. He was convicted of first-degree murder, even though he didn't actually kill anyone. CPR's Andrea Dukakis has covered juvenile incarceration for more than a decade and is following this story. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ryan. Tell us about Curtis Brooks, why he's in prison for life without the possibility of parole, at least for now. Well, I think it's easiest to tell the story from the perspective of a man who was on the jury that found Brooks guilty in the late 1990s. My name is Bruce Groday, and I'm a former juror on the Curtis Brooks trial. During the trial, basically what we heard was that Curtis was at the arcade in the Aurora Mall. Groday says Curtis Brooks had been kicked out of the house by his mother. She was using drugs and by many accounts neglectful. Brooks started talking to three boys at the mall, and at some point they hatched a plan to steal a car. They all left the mall and went over across the street. That's where 24-year-old Christopher Ramos was walking away from an ATM at a bank. They confronted him. One of the individuals actually shot the gentleman, shot him uh, in the head. From the beginning, Grodet says the jury understood that only one of the four boys fired the gun that killed Ramos. They weren't saying that Curtis Brooks is one who fired the shot. Still, the prosecution explained Brooks should be found guilty of felony murder. If you're involved in a robbery or any other circumstances and there's a someone killed in that, anyone involved in it is just as culpable as the person firing the shot. Wait, I have to interrupt here. In felony murder, anyone involved is just as guilty as the person firing the shot? Yeah, in many parts of the country, people can be convicted of murder for any killing that happens when they're in the process of committing another serious crime. In the past few decades, some states have decided to abolish felony murder laws. In those states, someone like Brooks wouldn't be charged with murder. Studies have found felony murder laws disproportionately affect juveniles. It's estimated about one in five juveniles sentenced to life without parole were felony murder cases. Okay, so what wound up happening in Curtis Brooks's case. Groday says the jury deliberated for a day. They found Curtis Brooks guilty, but then they learned information before the sentencing that they hadn't known about. What we heard was that Curtis had no prior criminal record. However, the other three individuals had lengthy rap sheets. And what we found out was that the three that morning were on basically a crime spree. They were breaking into houses. They had stolen cars. I asked the judge, well, will this get to be something that we get to consider during uh, the deliberation for the sentencing hearing? And maybe the judge had said something earlier, very in the beginning of the trial. I certainly don't remember it. But the judge said, oh, no, this is a felony first degree murder trial. The fact that you found him guilty makes him automatically convicted to life in prison with no possibility of parole. So this is after the verdict, before sentencing. Exactly. Groday says he was shocked. I could hear several of the other uh, jurors in the room uh, gasp. One of the questions that was asked was, did you ever try to work out a deal with him? Because he had no prior convictions, the defense attorneys told us they begged 
But prosecutors did offer a plea deal to one of the boys who took part, but like Brooks, didn't shoot Ramos. Grodet notes that other boy is white and now out of prison. A third boy who was 13 and also white was too young for adult court and went through juvenile court. He's also out. Brooks and the shooter, who are both black, are the only ones who remain in prison. I come from a very conservative type family. And and I really grew up with, if you do the crime, you're going to do the time. Now, after this trial, I really realized that there's so much more in play. Now, Andrea, since Brooks's trial in the late 1990s, there have been several rulings from the U.S. Supreme Court that affect inmates who got life without parole sentences when they were juveniles. Yeah, in recent years, the high court has continued to rule that juveniles should be treated differently from adults when it comes to these long sentences. Justices point to research that finds children's brains aren't fully developed, so they argue they shouldn't be treated the same as adults. A big change came in 2012 when the court ruled that automatic life without parole sentences for juveniles are unconstitutional. Then in 2016, it went even further. In a major ruling this week, the Supreme Court underscored a previous decision that said sentencing children to prison for life without chance of parole is unconstitutional. Justice that Anthony 2016 Kennedy. ruling made the decision retroactive. States had to go back and revisit the sentences. In Colorado, it applied to about 48 juvenile offenders who had expected to spend their entire lives in prison. One, of course, is Curtis Brooks. A step forward tonight for the 48 inmates sentenced as juveniles to life without parole here in Colorado. So the Colorado legislature passed a bill saying most juvenile offenders would get new sentences of 40 years to life. But those convicted of felony murder like Brooks would be eligible for even shorter sentences. Mm. Um, The bill was then challenged as unconstitutional because prosecutors said it showed preferential treatment to a certain group. A certain group. Those juveniles who had been convicted of felony murder. And that brings us to a couple of weeks ago when the Colorado Supreme Court weighed in. Yeah, it said the legislature got it right when it passed the original bill with the new sentencing guidelines. So that meant those convicted of felony murder when they were children can, in fact, be sentenced under those less restrictive sentencing guidelines. In Colorado, there are about 16 inmates, including Brooks, who fall into this category. 16. So what happens now? Well, soon Brooks and his attorneys are expected to head back to court to request a 30-year sentence with time off for good behavior. Other cases like his are also being decided. So when does that mean Brooks could be released? Like, how soon? Okay, so he's been in prison for about 20 years. Uh, So if a judge agrees to a new 30-year sentence and gives him time off for good behavior, he could be released as early as next year. What kinds of things will the judge weigh in granting a new sentence? So the judge will consider mitigating circumstances in the case that Brooks was young when the murder took place and that he had no prior criminal record. The judge will also have to consider Brooks' time in prison. And Brooks had some behavioral issues when he was first locked up at 15 years old in an adult jail. He ended up in solitary confinement. But then things started changing for him. I went to visit Brooks in prison earlier this year. He said his perspective really changed when he started reading a lot in solitary confinement. And I got into philosophy at that time. And once I did that, it became a thing where... I hungered for that knowledge, and I spent my days just learning. 
Brooks also studied several languages, learned math, and got his GED. And he's been taking college classes from prison. By all accounts, his behavior has been very good. He now lives in what's called an incentive unit. Uh, It's for inmates who have good behavior. Brooks says he's accepted that he could spend his entire life in prison, but he hopes he'll be released soon. He told me the only thing that scares him is that he'd forget the crime he committed and become complacent. And that's why I try to put myself mentally in a place where I will never forget the circumstance that brought me here or the impact that it had on Christopher Ramos or his family. Andrea, what about the family of the victim and of other victims of murders where a juvenile was sentenced to life without parole? I mean, they believe their loved one's killer was going to be in prison for life. That's right. I couldn't reach Ramos's family, but I did talk to the district attorney's office in Arapahoe County. They said they have been in touch with the Ramoses, and the family is not in favor of a lighter sentence. Other victims' families have expressed worry and anger that the perpetrators could one day be released. Defense attorneys have also petitioned Governor John Hickenlooper for clemency in some of these cases, including Brooks. What about the challenges that Brooks will face if he's released? I mean, he's spent all of his adult life, you know, behind bars. That's a good question. I talked to his defense attorney, Ashley Ratliff, about this. It's it's a lot, right? I mean, the world has changed, right? 20 years ago, there weren't cell phones, right? If you just think about some little things or like, you know, credit card to pay for gas. Ratliff says Brooks has a strong support system in Maryland where he used to live when he was a young boy. That includes a state senator there and a group of people that's formed to support his education and help him when and if he gets out. But it's going to be a very big difference from inside to outside. Um, And I've seen some of that in a couple of clients who have been released after long periods of time. Because it's just different. When you go to prison as a child and then you come out as a 37-year-old, you're a different person. The world is a different place. But Curtis has really handled himself in so many remarkable ways. And I know he'll say, I'm up for the challenge. I'm ready. And I think he is. So it's not at all clear when Curtis Brooks will be released. Other legal roadblocks could come up, but it looks increasingly like he'll one day get out of prison despite what he did as a teenager. Andrew, thanks so much for this. Thanks, Ryan. CPR's Andrea Dukakis. She's been covering juvenile incarceration in Colorado for more than a decade. Coloradans typically vote on hot-button issues that include the economy, social issues, health care. But across the state, the changing environment may drive more voters to the polls this November. CPR's environment and energy reporter Grace Hood explains. Kirk Kalinke's voting past makes him a unique political animal. It has nothing to do with his party affiliation. He's a longtime registered Republican in Grand County. What's different is that he's defined his politics based on water conservation and the environment. I'd like to catch a fish. I haven't had a chance for a week. Thanky fishes outside Tabernash. He's on a stream that feeds the Colorado River, the crux of many water debates in the West. As the head of a local chapter of Trout Unlimited, Clinky says he may break with his party to support Democratic candidate Jared Polis for governor. Even though there's so many important issues, transportation's a mess, keeping our environment healthy 
has to be one of the most important issues on the minds of our politicians. But the environment hasn't been a priority for most voters. Lori Weigel is with Public Opinion Strategies, a polling firm that runs the annual Conservation in the West survey. It's a bipartisan poll on environmental and political beliefs. Weigel says one of the most surprising shifts in this year's poll is that both Democrats and Republicans are increasingly identifying with the term conservationist. Generally, we have seen that how people identify themselves doesn't tend to change a lot over time. So it's really been somewhat remarkable that we've seen a a significant double-digit shift. 75 percent of Colorado voters self-identify as a conservationist, a 10 percent increase over the last two years. You see that in people like Cindy Wright, a Moffat County resident who's co-founder of Wild Horse Warriors. Is that the water ring or is that water? That's... They have emptied this overnight. Wright inspects a 300-gallon water tank. She started watering the horses during this summer's drought. The hot and dry temperatures and her affection for the land motivated her to start a nonprofit to protect the animals. Her rising conservation beliefs have brought to the fore questions about federal management practices. If we were treating our own wildlife or our own livestock at home, to some extent the way the government treats our wild horses, the Humane Society would be on our cases. Wright voted for Trump because in 2016, health care was a key political issue. Changing consciousness is one thing, but the real question for environmental groups is whether Wright's views will drive her to the polls. Stand for! In nearby Steamboat Springs, more than a 1,000 residents crowded in front of the courthouse this August to support public lands. Sunny Duckles is a longtime resident. She's here because the environment has become a more important voting issue. She opposes the Trump administration's increased drilling on federal lands. I really want us to put our government behind looking for alternative methods for energy. Douglas says the environment in Steamboat Springs is the economy. This summer's drought hurt local fishing and tubing businesses. And climate change could hurt the nearby ski economy. Because I really believe that it's not a Democrat or a Republican issue in our community. It's, you know, both the rural area as well as our small village city are very into the environment. Event organizer Cody Perry says there's palpable frustration with the Trump administration, especially about efforts to shrink public lands that went against overwhelming support for protections. The landscape is our identity and and when we see that taken from us, it's the same thing as someone coming into your house and taking something from you. Outdoor trade and recreation groups have also jumped into the political fray. They've released scorecards and questionnaires to inform voters on candidates' environmental positions. Because in some of today's increasingly close political races, they say a conservation vote can make a difference. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Now an update. Voter registration saw a real jump last week with almost 16,000 Coloradans either signing up to vote or updating their registration. That's because last Tuesday was National Voter Registration Day, 
and a hugely successful one, according to the Colorado Secretary of State's office. This is the highest midterm election that I've seen in the 10 years that I've been with the office. That is elections director Judd Choate. He'd expected 10 to 12,000 transactions, but that was blown out of the water. As we told you last week, there was a big emphasis this year on reaching young voters, even ones who aren't yet 18. And that paid off, Choate says. So the group tended to be younger. In fact, we had a number of that 15,972 who were pre-registrants, meaning that they are registrants that are below the age of 18. So they pre-registered in anticipation of a future election. And that was around 1,000 of those. And in terms of party breakdown? On that day, about 33% were Democrats and about 27% were Republicans. And then the lion's share were unaffiliated. State Elections Director Judd Choate. Colorado has its share of ghost towns, Tin Cup wants you to know it's not one of them. At first blush, the former mining town in Gunnison County might look abandoned, but it's very much alive. It is even experiencing traffic jams. Tin Cup property owner Tom Carroll is going to tell us about the near demise of Tin Cup and why so many visitors are now swarming there. Hi, Tom. Hi, Ryan. Describe Tin Cup for those who've not been there. That includes me, by the way. (laughs) Well, Ryan, um, it sits in uh, the south end of Taylor Park between Buena Vista and Gunnison. Okay. uh, Eight miles down a dirt gravel road from the Taylor Reservoir. Beautiful setting, 10,000 feet up. Um, And it originated way back in uh, the late 1870s. But today, it's, again, just... Situated in this gorgeous valley with these huge mountains all around, wonderful trees and streams, and home to to uh, numerous families today, which which are there for vacations, and there are a few that even stay there all year round. And what is on the land? What does town look like? Town looks like this picturesque little town with a combination of old original cabins, some of them built in the 1880s, but. Uh, lots of fix-up have gone on these days. There are several new cabins around also. So it's really a mixture of that. But the the owners of, of the cabins and even the new ones really respect the history and the area and try to uh, maintain an architecture that's uh, more conducive to that. I understand one of those cabins, which is 137 years old, is yours. That's correct. The, the original part of the cabin was built in 1881 by one of the prominent saloon owners in town. And uh, my great-great-uncle, Jim Garden, came into town in 1897, and he purchased what is now our cabin in 1925 for $100. We have the check stub to Ah, prove that. Wow. Okay. Surprised you've been able to keep a check stub that long. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So Tin Cup is this collection of old log miners' cabins, and you say some uh, new structures as well. It's not easy to get to the... 
year-round population, which you referenced, is about three in the summer that balloons to maybe a few dozen. But how is it that Tin Cup now suffers from the big city problem of congestion? What's going on there? Well, it's been discovered by the ATV crowd, for one thing. All-terrain um, vehicle. Correct. Okay. Correct. And in fact, it's it's advertised. Taylor Park itself is advertised as like the ATV capital of the country which obviously brings interest to people. And there are some terrific trails and, and, and roads, off-roads to go explore. And there's some great circular kind of routes that you can come into town and go over to Cumberland Pass and go see the historic Alpine Tunnel. You can go over Tin Cup Pass and go into the historic St. Elmo. So there's some great things to see and, again, wonderful countries to explore. I'm picturing trucks Coming up the dirt road that are, what, towing the ATVs before they get to the land? Uh, Fortunately, we don't allow trailers to be parked in the town itself. Ah. So the ATVs have sort of have to come in by themselves, which is nice. And um, we do have a restaurant, actually, two eating facilities in town, Frenchie's Restaurant. You've had to post signs all over advising visitors to slow down, though, and not to trespass and generally to treat Tin Cup like it's not some abandoned place. Have the signs helped? Uh, they have. We, we, we don't like them from an uh, aesthetic standpoint, but they seem to have slowed down traffic because sort of a two-blocks stretch of Grand Avenue, which is the main street right in front of Frenchie's Restaurant and the other barbecue place and the Tin Cup store, can get really bottlenecked with those ATVs and Jeeps parked in front of the restaurant. And, and it's also a fishing pond right there for kids. It so, sounds like people weren't necessarily being uh, mindful. Correct. Okay. Correct. And, and unfortunately, we've had a resort to the signs to remind people that, hey, these are privately owned uh, cabins and please respect that and don't just drive through it like whatever you imagine. <laughs> whatever you imagine. I was thinking bad out of heck. There you maybe. go. That'll okay. work. <laughs> Uh, For many years, Tin Cup nearly did join the roster of Colorado ghost towns. Briefly, how did it go from a bustling gold rush town, I think of near 5,000 people, Uh to near ghost town? That's a great question. There's there's been a couple of boons and busts over time where the late 70s is where it really got established in the first boom. Mid-80s, it kind of uh, demised and and there was a... Started to pick up in the 90s, had a silver crash during that time and demise. But then uh, late 90s, it kind of picked up again, not to the extent of the early seven, or the early 80s, but um, activities in the mines, in the town. Um, but then two fires took place in town, which is typical of the old ghost towns, the old mining towns in Colorado. In 1906, one side, the south side of Washington Street, which was the main uh, thoroughfare and main uh, merchandise area and saloons that burned, and a whole whole block of, of buildings burned. You know, wood buildings goes quickly. Yeah. In 1913, the other side of Washington burned. My goodness. So that was kind of the death knell of it really being a viable town. Am I right about that population of near 5,000? That's what point? the story goes. Okay. Yeah. It, it, if you count the miners up in the mines and all that kind of good stuff. Too. What, what's the story behind the name Tin Cup? <laughs> I can go on and on about that. It it, it actually, a um, couple of different stories go on, but when James Taylor is the guy who's recognized it's kind of finding, discovering the area, he came in with a couple other prospectors. And the story goes, they were camped for the night and their horses got loose. And as they were searching for them, they discovered one up in what now is Tin Cup Gulch, supposedly. 
And one of the prospectors scooped gravel in his tin cup because he saw some shiny things and took it back to campsite and washed it and found some gold. So that tin cup got associated in the area, and the whole area got named the Tin Cup Mining District. The town itself started incorporated as Virginia City. Virginia City? Yes. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about Tin Cup, Colorado in Gunnison County. And uh, it is not a ghost town. They want you to know that. Correct. It has been near that status, uh, but it's experiencing something of a boon uh, because of ATV traffic in the area. And uh, Charles Gates, who started Gates Rubber in Denver, was also an early resident of Tin Cup. What was he doing there? Great story. Ni- 1905, Charles Gates came out and was the head mining engineer for the West Gold Hill Mining and Milling Company. A group of investors got together to build a mill and uh, tramways, two separate bucket tramways up the hill, up Gold Hill, with the 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 mill down below. And Charles Gates came and was, again, the head mining engineer for that operation for about a year and ended up then going from there, uh, coming into Denver and starting uh, – well, acquiring, I think, a failing enterprise with his brother that then turned into the whole Gates Rubber Company. Yeah, I think a lot of people see, maybe transplants, see the name Gates and might think Bill Gates. But this is a different Gates entirely <laughs> uh, that made a real impact in Colorado. So from 1951 to 1969, a Denver radio broadcaster put a quirky spotlight on Tin Cup. So Pete Smythe did a radio show on KOA that purported to be broadcast over the barbed wire from East Tin Cup. Uh, He had a conglomeration of regular characters, which was the host really doing different voices. Uh, Was he ever in Tin Cup? Actually, he was. Um, And in fact, the story goes that he actually acquired some property around there, too. So he was familiar with the town, and that kind of sparked this idea for him to use uh, that kind of setting for his radio show. Um, but clearly he did not broadcast from Tin Cup. Oh. But story goes that several people would come in and find Tin Cup and look around and find where, where is Pete Smythe's general store and can can we meet him? And then that caused a little bit of consternation with the residents and, and the, the people kind of flowing in to find that. What do you see as the future for Tin Cup? Oh, continued uh, – yeah, similar to what it is now. Okay, like, you don't you don't expect much change. Yeah, and what's really cool is that there, there's a lot of families like my own that have ties way back to the town. We're one of the older ones with the older ties, but there's numerous that that have similar uh, ties that just love the area, love the community, and there is a great sense of community within town. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. You heard. From Tom Carroll, who's a part-time resident of Tin Cup in Gunnison County. He also lives in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's a new mashup. It's part symphony concert, part light show, part TED Talk. 
A Light in the Void is the creation of the Grammy-nominated composer Austin Wintory. He's best known for scoring films and video games. His collaborator is the Emmy-nominated writer and director Tony Lund, who has produced for Discovery and National Geographic. Their new project features animation, real-life scientists, and music performed by the Colorado Symphony. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank Hi. you. In this show, you have three real-life scientists, a physicist, an anthropologist, and a planetary scientist, on stage interacting with two professional actors. Uh, it made me wonder what it is you love about science so much that you wanted to bring it to stage. Well, for me, for both of us, really, science has always been more of a kind of way of life. It's not a, I'm stealing Tony's catchphrase here, but science is not a genre. It, it's not a thing we put in a drawer and classify away alongside other things. It's it's an, a philosophy through which to view the life. There's a poetry to uh, the universe. There's a poetry to life. And it, it doesn't matter what your personal philosophies or your politics are or your religion. All around us is this beautiful, amazing, mysterious world. We all know that. And uh, science is the process by which we understand that. And it's beautiful. And what, what I wish everyone could experience is when you start to learn about the way things work, it fills life with meaning and purpose. And it's it's filled my life with meaning and purpose. It's filled Austin's life with meaning and purpose. And we're not advocating that everyone go out and buy a chemistry set and start like mixing things together, and making things explode. Really what it is is... That's not a bad idea, though. Right. I mean, like, by all means, like, go for it. Um, they won't be provided with each ticket. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. Austin Winter and Anthony Lund are not legally liable for anything, <laughs> any claims made during this interview. Um, so when you learn to look at the universe with eyes of openness and you learn to accept ambiguity, it it changes your life forever. And that's what this show is about. That's everything that we're doing here. You grew up in Denver, Austin. You've guest conducted for the Colorado Symphony at its Comic-Con tribute shows. And I understand the symphony uh, approached you about doing an original production. What you threw back at them was was anything but traditional. (laughs) Well, that's kind of my MO. I I try to always go somewhere I've never been. My, My little catchphrase is when I finish a project, I like to look back at it and say, I didn't know that I knew how to do that. And so we had done these live shows. We did a Red Rocks show with with the Video Games Live. And then I also actually hired them to record two of my soundtracks. I did a video game and a movie here in Betcher, flew my whole crew from L.A., and we we made it into a recording studio and hired the full orchestra. And so there's been a, you know, good half decade of partnership there. And, and experimentation. And, oh, for sure. So, yeah, backstage one day, their artistic administrator, um, Tony Pierce, said, if we were to give you a night on our calendar to do anything you want, just out of curiosity, what would you make? And I, I, I fumbled some answer of I've always wanted to make a show or a concert or something that's science and music together. And he basically said, great. So the show features a young protagonist called The Seeker. She lives in a dark forest that's kind of terrifying to her. But there's a campfire that offers some comfort. Uh, Tony, without giving too much away... What can you tell us about the storyline? Sure. Well, one of our very first conversations was about how do we capture what science feels like? We don't want to lecture people. We don't want to do a, 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 like, here's how black holes work and let's explain space-time physics. We don't want to do that. 
Uh, we want to capture raw emotion. And the way that human beings have been doing this for centuries is through storytelling, uh, specifically through a tradition of storytelling that now we call the classic myth, like the Joseph Campbell hero's journey. It's, it's the same type of storytelling tradition that's seen in The Matrix, Star Wars, Alice in Wonderland, Lord of the Rings, you name it. So we are telling a mythic story about this young girl, and she's afraid of the dark. She's alone, just like all of us in her life. She's full of questions. What is out there in the darkness? It's not the dark that is terrifying to us. It's what can be hiding in there that we can't see. She is in a state where the three most terrifying words are, I don't know. And then on this fateful night, as her campfire is dying and dying and she's trying to feed it and put sticks in it and wood and nothing's working and it, it's, it seems to have a mind of its own in fact we have a, a little bit of a castaway wilson thing going on i don't want to give too much away the, but... the idea of an inanimate object that you can talk to yeah okay and that that suggestively kind of talks back okay yeah i <laughs> uh, in this night where she's been here for a long time and the fire's dying, 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 dying. And she's at her wit's end when out of the woods, a man in a bunny suit just comes out of nowhere. And he's trying to warm his hands up on the little meager fire and offers her help. If she's willing to go on a journey and take a big risk, she decides to go on that journey. And what it kicks off is a whole series of encounters where she'll tangle with these larger than life characters, all played by... The same actor, the brilliant, brilliant, effervescent Troy Baker. How do the real-life scientists weave into this, Austin? Like I uh, mentioned earlier, the original conceit of the show was basically a purely science plus music concept. And and you could almost think of that as a science variety hour. You know, we live in a world where people like Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson have become kind of pop culture icons as the inside baseball term for them is science communicators. And I thought, I've always loved those people. I admire those people. I've worked with some of those people Hmm. professionally. But what really excited me was the idea of hearing from the actual scientists themselves, the people who we bring them out of the lab, we bring them out of their observatories, we bring them out of their various experimental dens and say, let's put you on a stage with a live orchestra and just tell us about what you do. And so the seeker will encounter a kind of existential question and then has what we're framing as almost like a vision where the lights will all go crazy. It'll get very colorful. And then the scientist comes out with big fanfares from the orchestra. And then they proceed to tell us about their work in a very personalized and autobiographical way. It took seven years to reach Saturn. And then came 13 years of silently, methodically, measuring, probing, observing this breathtaking alien wilderness. And oh, the wonders that we saw. How was it to work with the scientists? So you've got, uh, I'll just reiterate here, a professor of physics at Caltech. This is Maria Spiripulu. Spiripulu. Okay. And then Carolyn Porco, who's well known here in Colorado, a professor of planetary science at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And then Alice Roberts, professor of anthropology and paleopathology. Yes. Ancient mm-hmm. diseases, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how was it to integrate them, Tony? Yeah. So uh, you're probably thinking right now, like, wh- okay, you've got this mythic story going on. And yeah. then scientists come out like, 
what? <laughs> How is that one show? How is that? Like, what? What's going on here? And Dude. they're animated shorts, by the way. Yeah, there's. We have an. <laughs> we we uh, we integrate animation and and lots of lighting design, and we have a um, amazing robotic fire thing that you'll just have to see to believe that that Tony built himself. That by I the did, way, mm. I, I did build myself. What I can say is that this is a light in the void. Is Cosmos meets a Christmas Carol. Ah, okay, Cosmos. So that's like the documentary series mm-hmm. originally by Carl Sagan. Uh, Carl Sagan, Carl thank Sagan you. And, and then redone by by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yep. Oh, and then uh, a Christmas Carol. In other words, because of these apparitions. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it really sounds like this is a show about fighting ignorance. That's the theme. I, I would actually, I would actually flip it. It's a show about embracing your ignorance. Ah, that to me is the that is what the essence of science is all about: is recognizing there's things I don't know. And once I've identified that I don't know it, that is itself its own call to adventure. So what role is music playing during this whole experience? So the orchestra will be running through the whole show, almost as if it was an opera or a piece of musical theater. Huh. Um, it is, in fact, not musical theater. I remember once describing it to someone. They said, oh, OK, so a bunch of people in astronaut suits singing about uh, the cosmos. And I said, God help me if that's what your takeaway from my explanation this was. This is not Oklahoma on Mars. Yes, it? exactly. No, this is this is a spoken word kind of TED conference slash drama with comedy and all the rest of it. I mean, it, it, it is a theater piece. Uh, and so the music runs throughout. And Tony and I have worked really closely so that his script is thinking about the music at any given time where it's we're asking questions of okay if we need the actor to walk here to here we don't say in how many feet they have to walk it's how many beats or how many measures is that Austin and I have poured our lives into this. This, this is our baby. This is we, we consider this the most um, important thing that we've done as creatives. And the reason why is that we've been talking about science with the show, and this is a show about science. But you will not hear the word science or scientist in this show huh. at all, because we want to give uh, everybody out there in the world a reason to have a renewal of vows with all that is greater. Than themselves, like high as fill in the blank that is appropriate for NPR broadcast. <laughs> Thank you for being with us. Of course. I can't wait to see this on stage. Th- much appreciated. Thank you we'll, so much. We'll see you there. Composer Austin Wintery and filmmaker Anthony Lund. Their new show is called A Light in the Void. Its world premiere with the Colorado Symphony is Friday at Betcher Concert Hall in Denver. Meringue mushrooms, skiers sausage, and Denver sheet cake. Those are just a few of the recipes in Colorado Cash, a cookbook that's become a staple in kitchens around the state. It was first published in 1978 by the Junior League of Denver as a fundraiser and has since sold more than a million copies. Proceeds pay for the group's 
community service programs. Longtime Junior League of Denver member J.D. Boat oversaw the first edition of the classic cookbook 40 years ago. Hi, J.D. Good morning. Meringue mushrooms. Indeed. I understand this recipe helped you sell some of the first copies of the book. What the (laughs) the heck is a meringue mushroom? Well, meringue mushroom is, in fact, a cookie, and it's a cookie that has chocolate on it, so it smells like chocolate. Um, But it looks like it could be styrofoam. And in fact, it was given as a gift one time and in a cute little basket. And the mushrooms are sitting in there, and they look like mushrooms. And the the recipient of the gift did not know that they were edible. Edible. And kept kept it as a decoration. But no, at the beginning, we were trying to promote the cookbook. 10,000 copies is a lot of copies, Ryan. It's hard to imagine that we could sell that many. So each member was encouraged to buy an entire case so that we would have an opportunity to sell them, which we did. So the meringue mushrooms, just to be clear, have no mushrooms in them. It's simply no, no, a, a nod to their shape. And what makes this, do you think, a truly Colorado cookbook? Well, first of all, it, the name of the the name of the book, Colorado Cash, I think it, we're flyover state. We weren't called that then, but now we are. And I think if it had been Nebraska Cooks, it wouldn't have done it at all. <laughs> well, Vail was really happening. It was really hot. Lots going on. We had... Uh, all the stuff that was going, Larimer Square was there. I mean, it was really different in Denver at the time. And Colorado was still the fisherman and hunter person they like to come here. And in fact, the book has a section on fish and game, which is very unique. I mean, almost everyone has a cousin or brother or somebody who hunts. And you say, what do you do with the pheasant when you get it? So and the what's recipes, the answer? What do you do with pheasant? Well, there are eight or ten recipes in Colorado Cash. Or if you have duck or elk or whatever. And we had a Mexican section, which was really pretty much ahead of its time for community cookbooks. So the, the Colorado part was a really huge factor. The other part was that when we tested, we didn't just take someone's recipe and say, oh, thank you, and put it in the book with your name. Uh-huh. We tested it. Because it could be awful. <laughs> well, we, we, went through, we went through a whole bunch to, to see which ones we even wanted to test. But then the key was we went for the very best of its kind. We had, if you imagine walking into a section and we're doing brownies, and on the dining table are 15 plates of brownies. Well, that's, first of all, you can smell the chocolate. It's just kind of going throughout the room. By the 15th taste, you're kind of tired of the brownies. I can imagine, right? And everybody has a brownie recipe, right? Of course. It says theirs is the best. Yes. And so we determined, we narrowed it down to maybe three that we really liked. And then someone said, well, in the in the group, one of the testers said, yeah, well, that's good, but it's not nearly as good as my Aunt Ellie's brownie recipe. We said, well, then get it. And she did. And almost always in that case, that was the best recipe of its type. <laughs> and we got so we had recipes from Colorado in the book, but we had recipes from all over the country. Because Aunt, Aunt Ellie now lives in London, but she shared her recipe, and it was the best brownie. You called this a community cookbook. I guess that's really the genre here, where yes. it's not some star chef doing no. all of the recipes, but the community is coming together uh, to submit things like skiers, sausage. What is skiers, sausage? Skiers, sausage is four ingredients, and it's easy to make, and you can make it the night before. And if you go up skiing, which we did in college and then now even with family— you know, they have wonderful places for breakfast in Vail and Aspen, but they're also very expensive. You take a group of people. You're yeah. always looking out for penny saving. So you make this the night before. It's sausage, link sausage, apples, lemon juice, and brown sugar. 
And however much you make, it's gone. It's like bacon. If you make a lot of bacon, it's pretty soon it's all gone, and this is gone too. In fact, my son and son-in-law often look at the last portion at a brunch and wonder who's going to get it. I see. It's delicious and easy to make. You can make it the night before. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about a Colorado cookbook that was first published 40 years ago. We're talking about Colorado Cash from the Junior League of Denver. It's become a staple in many kitchens in this state. And uh, J.D. Boat edited that first edition. Uh, have you then, over the decades, made everything in this cookbook, or are there still some recipes you haven't done yourself? I would imagine that there are. I think I tested probably 80% of them at the final, and finally, and my family was really... They, all of our families were very, very encouraged to have us finish the project because we didn't always have something that we liked. But the, the members were each required to take a recipe, go buy the ingredients at their own expense and prepare it and see what it was like. And then we narrowed that down, and then we had a third testing for the recipes. So, Did you have Ted's Kitchens, or was this all no, done No, no, at, at home, at home. At, at home. home. And so then you served dinner to your family and hoped that you'd have somebody who'd eat partridge, for example, or pheasant or... In the many cookbook interviews that I've done over the years, I have always been fascinated by the answer to this question, what is Colorado cuisine? So you've talked about its connection to, you know, maybe the outdoors and to hunting yes. and to fishing. How how would you answer that? I think it's probably more generic than that. I think it's very much like the tail end of the Midwest, which you okay. know, as we're going west, it's it's a wholesome, hearty Pretty much healthy food, even 40 years ago. We, we, one of the reasons the book was so popular is we stressed fresh ingredients, which mandarin salad, which is the number one popular recipe. Mandarin salad. Mandarin salad. This is the, the recipe everyone's after. Yes. And it, the Denver Post did a survey 10 years ago, a reader survey, and they said, what do you think it's going to be? I said, well, it's going to be the mandarin salad, and it was. It calls for a can of mandarin oranges. Well, uh-huh. we didn't have halos and all the little mandarins that we now have. So you put that in there. But we had a lot of stressed fresh ingredients. It says so at the beginning of the book. And I think that's held true. And it's a an elevation of sort of a Midwestern look. An elevation of the Midwest, which really is the Rockies in a oh, way, shoot, right? I didn't thought about that part. Um, it's interesting you mention elevation because I think cooking at elevation is a challenge, baking especially. And I know that you have some cooking tips in the book. Will you give me an example of a cooking tip that has saved a meal of yours? Well, I think one of the first, uh, maybe, okay, I had a TV on recently and there was a cooking show. Uh-huh. And the guy said, oh, this is this great new tip. It's going to save you a lot of a lot of time. What you do is you partially freeze protein before you want to slice it thinly. For the grain bowls and all the things that people are eating now. It's a hint in Colorado Cash 40 years ago. Okay. So it's to freeze what? The chicken, the beef? Whatever. Yes. Anything you're going to slice, you want to slice it really thin Uh for fajitas or for grain bowls is what I'm thinking, chicken. Chicken right out of the refrigerator is very hard to slice thinly. It's too wiggly. It doesn't work that way. So just having that light freeze. Put it in the freezer for 20, 20 minutes, depending on how big the portion of protein is. And then it just slices beautifully. You can beautifully. slice it really thin, yeah. But that's that's in a hint. It's a hint in the entree section in Colorado Cash. And it was also a news item on a cooking show a couple of weeks ago. Thanks for joining us. What do you think you're going to cook next? I'm actually going to make 
this is hard to say, Pike's Peak Spiked Apple Crisp, which is a recipe from Cash. But the spiked part is Grand Marnier, and it's fabulous. Okay. I hope you share some. Thanks for being with us. I almost us. brought some. She, she almost <laughs> brought some. Right, so I can be intoxicated at work. Sounds great. Thanks, J.D. Appreciate it. <laughs> it was fun. Thank you. J.D. Bode of Denver edited Colorado Cash, a cookbook first published 40 years ago by the Junior League of Denver, which marks its centennial this year. Finally today, music inspired by Colorado's natural beauty. Sustain Music and Nature is a nonprofit in Fort Collins that pairs musicians and environmental groups. It hosts songwriting retreats known as Songscapes. Bands spend a week on public lands and write a song and shoot a video. The latest Songscape features the Burroughs, a Greeley soul band, After spending time in Roosevelt National Forest and on CSU's mountain campus, they wrote Step Into the Music. I can see the sunlight through my eyelids as I wake the possibility. And I can see the moonlight in my mind now. And I'm dreaming about what could be And I know this Life is for me Come with me and we will leave our gifts behind Yes, I know this World is for you Don't wait another day Cause now's the time Don't you feel like dancing? Feel your body moving Step into the music started with nature sounds and then became disco. The Burroughs. You can see their video for Step Into the Music, shot in Roosevelt National Forest at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us at CPR News and Colorado Matters. <laughs>